Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, just the amazing opportunity that we have to, to gather together in your name, to open your word, to bow before you, to be people that, that worship you and want to know more about you. Father, we thank you for what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice. We know that he provided the way for us to be in relationship with you by grace, through faith. So we thank you for that. Please help us to have open hearts as we read your word. Help us to not be over your word, but to come under it as we read it in humility and respond to the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name. Pray. Amen. Well, uh, there's a lion hunter named Jake that lives at the foot of the Tobacco Root Mountains in Montana. And he's tasked with uh, keeping the mountain lions away from the valley and from the ranches. He keeps the people safe. He keeps the herds safe by keeping the mountain lions away. He's got a pack of dogs, and, and, he, and he trains them up for this task. And the older dogs have a lot of experience. So when it's time to start getting the dogs ready uh, to prepare for the grueling winter that's coming, getting their endurance ready, man, they just jump right on the track, you know? And he's got them going. They're running. They're running at the pace that he wants. Uh, they're staying on track, and they're getting ready because they've been doing it for a while. But he's also got some young dogs, and, and they don't have as much experience. So sometimes they might get a little distracted or something like that. And he's got this one dog, a young pup named Trip. He's only six months old, and he's never been uh, a part of this pack. He's, he doesn't have any experience hunting mountain lions or anything like that. So... Um, one day, they're out, they're training. All the dogs are following the commands, obeying the commands of, of the master. They're, they're running the right way. They're keeping their noses on the track, and they're working toward building up the endurance required to chase those mountain lions back up into the mountains when that deep snow hits. But Trip got distracted, and he fell behind. He moved away from the pack. And Jake had to go looking for him. He got distracted by a dead deer that some coyotes had killed. So he tripped ended up following his nose to this dead deer instead of following the commands of his master. And because of it, the whole pack and the people that were counting on Jake were put at risk. There was a hole in the defense. One distraction. One time is all it takes for us to follow our own hearts, to go our own way and stop listening to God, leaving ourselves and God's people open to attack. That's all it takes. And when we think of Israel's history, a similar pattern can be seen. See, Israel is tasked with being a people separate unto God and showing all the people of the world who the one true God is. But of course, we remember they don't always do that. They follow their noses. 
They get distracted. And they need God to put them back on the trail. Well, today our passage takes us through a summary of Israel's history. Uh, We'll be continuing in the book of Acts, so please, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn them to Acts chapter 6. We'll be covering Acts 6, 8 through 7, 53. And last time uh, Luke introduced Stephen, but now we see Stephen's ministry and his message to the Sanhedrin. Now Stephen's message uh, recorded in, in the book of Acts is the longest by far recorded in this book. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. I'll be summarizing quite a bit. But as we look at the passage, we're going to see two main things. Two main things. We'll see that God patiently pursues his people and that people rebelliously reject him. God patiently pursues his people and people rebelliously reject him. And then we'll close with an application for us that comes from the text. So, We begin Acts 6, verse 8, where Stephen bursts onto the scene in the recording of his ministry. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, Jesus told his disciples before he ascended in Acts 1.8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Acts 1.8, it's kind of like the guiding verse for the whole book of Acts. And we see here that Stephen is full of grace and power. He's full of the Spirit, and the people cannot cope with it. They can't resist it. They can't stand against it. So they begin to scheme. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I love that. This is what can happen when people who are opposed to God and his plan show up on the scene. They can't stand against the power of the Holy Spirit, so they react in a way that's dishonest. These people are deceitful, working in the shadows to rustle up other people. They gather false witnesses, spread false testimony. Now, the false witnesses said that Stephen was speaking against uh, the temple and the law and that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and alter their customs. And we don't have what Stephen was saying exactly. We don't have that recorded. But from his message that he's about to deliver to the Sanhedrin and 
through Jesus' and his disciples' teachings and the rest of Holy Scripture, we can say that the charges are probably pretty accurate. Now, what do I mean by that? Because they said it was false witnesses. Well, Jesus um, and his Holy Spirit brought with them a fundamental shift to temple worship and the law. It's, it's the reason why we aren't making sacrifices right now in the temple, right? But there is a shift. There's something new. There's something different that has happened. Jesus taught this. His disciples continued to teach it, so it's likely that Stephen taught it as well. But the issue is that the people misunderstood what Stephen was saying, and they brought false testimony in an effort to bring him down. It's a slight difference but it's really important. Now pay attention to the charges. And maybe if you have a paper Bible, I would encourage you to underline, write in it, because it's a big section and there's a lot that we're gonna cover. Um, if you have an electronic Bible and you can underline, that's great, or highlight, or just make notes on, on, your, uh, on your note sheet there. Look in verse 11 and underline Moses and God. Moses and God. First of the charges, blaspheming God and Moses. Verse 13. This holy place and the law. This holy place and the law. These are the charges that he was speaking against. The holy place and the law. Verse 14. Destroy this place and alter the customs. Destroy this place and alter the customs. So, Stephen is arrested, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and the church, as we remember, has already been before the Sanhedrin a few times in its short history, and now we have Stephen before the council again. And in Acts 7, verse 1, we read that the high priest simply said, are these things so? Are these things so? The high priest has one thing that he says here, are these things so? And the rest of our passage... <laughs> is Stephen talking. Verse 2 through 53 in chapter 7 is Stephen's message before that council. And when we look at the message, there's, gonna, there's three primary themes that kind of run through it. First, God's program here on earth has change and progress. We see there's movement in God's program and the way that he deals with people and, and how things are on the earth, okay? Second, God patiently pursues his people. God patiently pursues his people. Third, people rebelliously reject him. People rebelliously reject him. And at first glance, it may seem like Stephen isn't really defending himself against the charges that were, that were labeled against him. Um, but when you look closely, I think he actually is. See, like in a trial, we tend to think like, hey, you're on trial for murder. And the defense goes something like, it wasn't me because I was over here with this person and I didn't know that person, I didn't have access to, right? Then, the, then there's a whole bunch of evidence that happens, right? But when we read Stephen's message, it doesn't really seem like he's doing that. So um, some people think, man, he's not really defending himself at all. But if we look closely, I think he is. But he's doing it in a way that communicates a larger goal, a bigger plan, okay? 
Um, his main goal is to show that he's right, uh, is not to show that he is right or that he's innocent of the charges. Uh, I think his main goal is to show through the retelling of Israel's history that God patiently pursues his people and people rebelliously reject him. Now, it helps if we uh, think about it in sections. So uh, if you have your paper Bible, put this in the margins. We're going to kind of do a, a brief little outline of Stephen's message. So as I'm summarizing, you kind of know where we are, okay? Um, the first section of Stephen's defense, verses 2 through 16, they deal with Israel's patriarchal period. And it's refuting the charge of blaspheming God. So in your margin between 2 and 16, just put God there and then put like verse 611. All right, that's where that charge comes from. That he's blaspheming the name of God. Okay. The second major section, 17 through 43, deals with Moses and the law. And it's responding to the charge of blaspheming Moses. So you can write Moses in 611 there. And it's also responding to the charge of speaking against the law. And that comes from 613. The third section, verses 44 through 50, deals with the temple. And it responds to the charge against the temple. And that Stephen was allegedly saying that Jesus would destroy the temple and alter Jewish customs. So the temple is in 613 and then Jewish customs is brought out in 614. That's kind of an overview of Stephen's message and that's kind of how I'll be summarizing it, just so that we're all clear. So, the section from verse uh, two to 16 covers when God called Abraham from one land to the land that would become Israel. Now remember, uh, there's the Abrahamic covenant that happens. There's, there's the sign uh, of the covenant being circumcision. And then God gives Joseph dreams, right? He reveals to him some, some things through dreams. And, and of course, Joseph tells his, his family about it, and they all respond with, thank you, Joseph, for revealing to us what God is telling you. We are so thankful for the revelation of God through dreams. No. That's not what happens, right? They get angry, they get jealous, they reject God when they reject Joseph. And they sell him into slavery, right? And even though they rejected God and his revelation through Joseph, God patiently pursues them. He patiently pursues them because he puts Joseph in a position over Egypt where he's able to care for the people, including his family, that just sold him into slavery during a time of great famine. God patiently pursues his people even though they rebelliously reject him. That's the first section. The second major section comes from uh, verses 17 to 43, dealing with Moses and the law. I remember that time passes by and a time came where a pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph. So time goes by, and, and, and there's a new king of Egypt that does not hold Joseph and the Hebrew people in high regard. He doesn't remember what Joseph did for Egypt. So what does he do? He enslaves the Hebrew people. We remember this. But God patiently pursues his people, and he raises up who? Moses. He raises up Moses. He sends Moses to deliver the people. 
He puts Moses in a position of power, sends him to deliver his people. And look what Stephen says about Moses. Jump to verse 35 for me. This is what he says about Moses. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. And then verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. God patiently pursues his people. He sends Moses to deliver them, and they reject him. The Greek is really interesting here. There's a word, hutas, in the Greek. Say, hutas. Yeah. Uh, and it just means this one, okay? And, and, and the way Greek is kind of put together, like they didn't have italics and things like that to show emphasis or, or anything like that, but the way that they would organize their sentence structure can reflect emphasis. And uh, during this, in, in this section, every single sentence, hutas, is rushed to the front. And it's this one. So I'm going to give a, a, a small translation. Five times in the three verses, 35 through 38. Hutas is used, this one. This one, Moses, whom they disowned, in verse 35. Later in verse 35. This one, whom God sent to be both ruler. 36. This one led them out. Verse 37, this one is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel. 38, this one is the one who was in the congregation. See, there, when you read it that way, you actually see what Stephen is kind of saying to the council. He's bringing a lot of emphasis and he's saying, this one, Moses, you want to come talk to me about Moses? Saying that I'm blaspheming Moses? that I'm blaspheming the name of God, I just walked through Abraham and the patriarchs. I, I understand who God is. Now I'm walking through Moses and the law. I understand who Moses is. In fact, I think I understand who Moses and the law are better than you. It's almost like he's saying, this one, this one, this one, this one, to get their attention, leaving it out there, that we know He's moving to Jesus. God pursued his people, saving them from Egypt, but they rejected him and wanted to turn back to Egypt. And then what happens next? Well, they have Aaron. You'll remember the high priest form an idol out of gold. Even after being let out of bondage, they turn to idols and reject God. Church, I'm here to say that the same can be true of us as well. But table that for a moment, and we're going to come back to that. The third section of Stephen's speech, 
from 44 to 50 deals with the temple and the altered customs. Now, Jesus himself spoke about these things in the Gospels, but I want to take you to one passage in particular, okay? Uh, hold your place here in Acts uh, and flip backwards to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. It should only be a few pages. This is one of my favorite passages. Of course, it really is one of my favorite passages, but every time I'm talking about Scripture and I say this is one of my favorite passages, my wife makes fun of me because apparently I say that a lot about all the passages that I read, but that's okay. Uh, this really is one of my favorite passages, um, and we're actually going to look at this passage in depth this Wednesday. A little plug for uh, the Wednesday group that, that's meeting in the evenings. Uh, we're actually going through the book of John, and we're on John chapter 4 this week, but I'm not going to go in depth with it. You'll have to come to the Wednesday group to get the in-depth conversation. And Matt and Letitia Sarton are doing such a good job leading that group, so if you see them, please thank them and talk to them about the group. So, John chapter 4. Uh, this is the woman at the well. Uh, she's a Samaritan woman, which you'll remember. Um, and the issue of worship is kind of uh, coming up here. And uh, I, I just, I got to read it. it it's, it's amazing. So uh, look at verse 20. The woman says to Jesus, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, think about that. Jews and Samaritans did not go together, right? It was like water and oil. She's not really welcome to worship in Jerusalem. You understand that? But Jewish customs that the Sanhedrin holds to and temple worship, the idea of temple worship was that in the temple was the place to worship. You see that? She's kind of attacking the same kind of thing. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you people say that in Jerusalem is where we're supposed to worship. And then look at how Jesus responds to her, verse 21. Woman, now, I don't think he's uh, being mean there. That's, that's kind of a, uh, a cultural way to address people back then. Okay, just, be, just, just to be clear, I don't speak that way to my wife or anybody. Anyways, uh, Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus the Messiah has come and things are changing. There is a change that goes on. And the Sanhedrin, they don't get it. They don't get it. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Amen? Yeah. So Jesus tells her that there is a fundamental shift from the way temple worship and Jewish customs surrounding the temple are to be understood and lived out. And Stephen continued his message. Um, he, he continued this, this idea in his message when he was preaching. 
And now he's reminding the religious leaders of the progression of the temple worship revealed in Holy Scripture. But they too reject his message. Look back, uh, flip back to Acts 7. And look at what Stephen says to them. Because he knows that they're rejecting God. He knows that he's, they're rejecting his message. And look at what he says, Acts 7, verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. I, I can't, it's really hard for me to describe just how much that would cut uh, a Jewish person of that day, particularly uh, Jewish religious leaders like the Sanhedrin. Uncircumcised in heart? That's, I, I can't even describe it. It's like a haymaker just coming in and knocking them out, right? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. I just walked through the whole history of Israel. I showed you that I understand who God is, that I understand who Moses is, that I understand the law, and I understand temple worship and Jewish customs. And I showed you that every step of the way, people continue to reject God over and over again. But God patiently pursues his people and he brings them back to the trail. But then they go off, they follow their noses and they find another dead deer. They craft idols and God brings them back. And then they go again and craft idols and God brings them back. And you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Prophets were persecuted all throughout Israel's history. And now they killed the Son of God, the Anointed One, sent by the Father. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You're talking to me about the law? I understand the law. It's you guys that don't understand the law. You're not keeping the law. God showed up here in the flesh right before you. And you threw him out. God patiently pursues his people, and people rebelliously reject him. And that's what Stephen's telling them. And we see what the council's response is next week. We'll see that next week. For the remainder of our time, and what little time it is, um, I want us to think about how much of what we see in Israel's history can also be seen in our own lives. And that there's a warning of the danger of rejecting God here for us as well. We may not fashion for ourselves a golden calf as an idol to worship the way the Israelites did after being set free from Egypt. But we still turn to idols in our own hearts, even after being set free from the bondage of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, yeah. Yeah, I agree, actually, because um, 
I know the ways in which I reject God in my own life and in my own heart. And I'm convicted by that regularly. And some of you are thinking, I don't know if I believe that. I'm saved. I'm not rejecting God in the way that I live my life anymore. I just want to read uh, some things to highlight how pervasive this issue is. Some things from Scripture on our hearts and the human condition. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only, the only thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All the time. I am certainly glad that God is not going to send a flood to wipe us all out. But sometimes when we look at this world, do we not see, yeah, I get that. It certainly does seem like we move towards evil more than we move towards God. Uh, Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. And, and really, Paul here is, is uh, referencing Psalm 14. But he said, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's the human heart for you. Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That phrase is not meant to say that the people, oh, look at them, oh, at least they're trying. They don't, they don't have a king, but they're trying. They're trying to do good. They're trying to be good people. It's not what that phrase is saying. What, what it's saying is God decides what's good, but these people are superseding him. They're taking over. They're going to decide what's good. They are going to follow their hearts. You see that? And just as the people of Israel rejected God and had their high priest craft an idol, so too the people took Stephen before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest there rejects God's revelation through Stephen. And I think he's rejecting it in favor of of the idol of the temple and Jewish customs. I really think that's what's happening. They're blinded by their power and false understanding of God's plan. Church, we cannot continue to make the same mistake with our eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. We cannot continue to replace Jesus with idols in our hearts. Now, the scary thing about idolatry and sin is that it's really hard to weed out. Sometimes. And sometimes what you think you love isn't really what you love. Some of you know this intuitively, but some people are like, eh, I don't get it. Well, uh, 
Uh, James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love. Highly recommend it. It's a great book. Um, and in it, he's got a section uh, talking about this very concept that deep down, you may not actually love what you think you love. And he uses this, uh, uh, this Russian film and a book that was also written, same thing, um, called Stalker to illustrate this. Now, um, Stalker has three main characters. You've got Professor, who is a professor of science. You've got Writer, who's a writer, and Stalker. Real creative character names. But there you go, Professor, Writer, and Stalker. And Stalker is this kind of a guide, a tour guide, through this dystopian setting, and he's going to lead these two other characters to the zone. It's like, the, you know, everything's good in the zone. Things suck over here. Everything's good over here. We're going to the zone. I'm going to lead you to the zone. And then in the zone, there's the room. And the thing about the room is it will give you whatever your heart desires. Whatever your heart desires. Okay? That, that's, that's the overall premise of this, of this story. And... Um, I just need to read this. Uh, this is taken from the book. It says, uh, the room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. A disturbing epiphany is creeping up on professor and writer. What if they don't want what they think? What if the desires they are conscious of, the ones they've chosen, as it were, are not their innermost longings? their deepest wish? What if, in some sense, their deepest longings are humming under their consciousness, unawares? It's kind of a scary thought. But I think there's some truth to that. I want to stand here and, and tell you that I love the Lord God with all my heart. And, and for the purposes of... of Obedience and salvation, I think that's true. But there are places in my heart that I know I don't really love him, that I love other things more than him. It's, it, it's, a, it's a slight shift, and it's a, it can be a hard thing to understand, but it's really valuable. Think about this. John Calvin said, uh, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. That's from John Calvin. And, and Luther even taught, that, uh, taught this same kind of concept. In fact, Luther took it a step further. He said, there's no uh, law-breaking that doesn't first break the first law. What's the first law? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah. So, in effect, all sin, all law-breaking is from a source of idolatry. That was Martin Luther. And I didn't want to bring this up because I feel like I'm going to step on some toes, but I'm going for it. So if you have a problem, feel free to email me at uh, steve at delriobiblechurch.com. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, I didn't want to bring this up, but I feel like God just kept holding this before me as I was preparing over and over and over again. So here we go. Uh, Disney, the idea of following your heart becoming who you really are, right? Uh, I love Disney movies. Don't get me wrong. I love Disney movies. I really do. Um, let it go, right? But, uh, 
What a scary thought if we really all followed our own hearts. Do you know where your heart would take you? It would take you to adultery. It would take you to murder. It would take you to places that you don't really want to go and that God does not want you to go. Follow your heart. You know, I, I, um, as many of you know, I was a, I was, I am a, a, an instructor pilot on base. And um, I was walking through the, uh, uh, the student squadron area this past week, and they have a little box on one of the uh, desks there. And if, the, if this was somebody's idea in here, I'm not putting it down, please. But, um, but they have a little box that says uh, the positivity box. And I was walking past it, and I was like, positivity box, what rubbish are we filling the minds of our future leaders with? But anyways, I, I stopped, and I was like, what is this? And I picked it up, and there's strips of paper in there, and I'm reading the strip of paper, right? And I read it out loud, and, uh, and there's a bunch of students around, <laughs> so I probably shouldn't have done this, but I did it. And I read it out loud, and I, it, says, uh, it says, don't follow your fears Follow the dreams of your heart. <laughs> and I read it, and this is what I did. I folded it back up, and I was like, that's garbage. And I threw it in there, and I left. Because here's the thing. If we all followed the dreams of our heart, that would take us to terrible places. Society would not actually work, right? We know this intuitively. As a parent, I, I want to tell my kids, be all that you want to be, right? But the reality is we have limitations placed on us, right? God limits us for our own good. If my son wants to be a Martian, he can't be a Martian. You get what I'm saying, right? If he wants to be a, a ninja, well, I guess maybe he could be a ninja. That's a bad ninja. But my point is there are limitations placed on us, and they are for our good, they are for our good. Our heart takes us to places that we don't really want to go. We think we do. But once we're there and we're caught up in sin and idolatry, we know. We know we're in a bad place because we followed our hearts and we found a dead deer. Instead of staying on track and listening to the commands of our master and learning to run with endurance, uh, Tim Keller has a book called uh, Counterfeit Gods that really digs into this idea of idolatry. Another book I highly recommend, Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. And he, in it, he's, I mean, the, the whole book is just really great, but there are several quotes that are, that are wonderful. He says, uh, an idol takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Takes good things and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. You know, there is nothing more dangerous than religious confidence in a fake God of our own imagining. There's nothing more dangerous than religious confidence in a fake God of our own imagining. And it's every believer's responsibility 
to resist the idol factory of their heart by filling their hearts with Jesus Christ. It's every believer's responsibility. We, uh, Tim Keller goes on and says, uh, we think that idols are bad things, but that's almost never the case. It's almost never the case, right? Like if, if, some, if I brought out a golden cow and said, worship it, I would not have a job here, right? And I, I, I don't know if I would be stolen, but bad thing, like that's, you guys aren't going to do that, right? It's, it's obvious. That, this is why idols we think are bad, but are sometimes good things that we elevate above Jesus. And that's what makes them bad. He goes on and says, anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Especially the very best things in life. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. Um, let's say that you are going to a Bible study, okay? You're going to a Bible study. That's a good thing, right? And you've studied the Word of God. That's a sign for that Bible study. And you've studied it, and you've wrestled with it, and you've prayed over it, and you've got a lot out of it right? Now, when you go to that Bible study and you spend 30 of the 40 minutes talking to try to make sure the people there know that you did your Bible study and they esteem you really highly because of your amazing knowledge and everything, you just took a good thing and actually moved it into the place of idolatry. Because what you're doing is, in essence, what you're saying is, I know that I'm in Christ, I know that I have approval in Christ, but I still need approval from you. I'm idolizing that approval. I'm idolizing what you think of me. Maybe you're someone that uh, spends a lot of time on your image. You care a lot about your image. It's not bad unless it is, unless what you're doing is idolizing the way other people view you and see you. Anybody struggle with that? Does anybody struggle with the idea that, that we seek the approval of our friends and our family more than we seek the approval of God? Folks, that's idolatry. Tim Keller goes on, he says, identifying our idols is complicated because they are complexly interwoven. They're theological, sexual, magic and ritual, political, economic, racial, national, relational, religious, philosophical, cultural, and deep. And then he says, deep idols are motivational drives and temperaments such as power, approval, comfort, and control that we make absolutes and they seek fulfillment through surface idols like money, family, or careers. Sometimes I get mad with my kids and um, when I get mad with my kids, I have to ask myself, am I mad with them because they're not listening to me and therefore departing from the track that I've set before them as, as the spiritual leader of the house and keeping them on track with God and all that kind of stuff, right? Or 
Am I mad and reacting in anger because I've lost control of the situation? Sometimes the second one is true. And I'm actually looking at control as an idol. And I'm beginning to think, what does it say about me that I've lost control? There's little steps that we make that sometimes we can miss when we're not careful. So, um, with the remaining time, I'm going to have just four questions that I want you to write down. I want you to um, go to the Lord in prayer. Ask these questions of yourself. And see if they surface anything in your own heart. Okay? And then I want you to uh, talk with someone you are in community with about what you learned. If you're not in community, please be in community. There, there are, we have groups all throughout the week. You know, uh, and it doesn't have to be at one of the groups. It could be like, hey, what are you doing later? You want to go to lunch? Okay, cool. And then you guys go to lunch. That's community, right? God-centered community is essential for spiritual formation. God-centered community is essential for spiritual formation. Okay, here are the questions. Question one, what do you characteristically daydream about? What do you characteristically daydream about? Question two, it's kind of a two-parter. What do you most fear? What do you most fear? What could you lose that would make life not worth living? Remember, Paul said to die is what? Gain. And to live is Christ. Question three. What fills you with irrational anger, anxiety, despondency, or guilt? What fills you with irrational anger, anxiety, despondency, or guilt? Question four. What do you effortlessly spend too much money on? What do you effortlessly spend too much money on? And when you ask yourself these questions, it, it's not like a, it's not like there is going to be an obvious and easy answer that definitely means that that particular thing is idolatry in your life in that moment. But if you never ask yourself these questions and you never think about this stuff, it's going to be really hard for you to see some of the areas of your own heart where, that you're blind to. That you're actually latching on to something as higher than God. And it becomes a place where you reject God. God patiently pursues his people. And people rebelliously reject him. Church, I don't want us to be a community that does that. I want us to be a community that goes to God and recognizes 
the ways in which we move away from him in our life. Help us to one another lift each other up and continue to move toward God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we think about idolatry, when we think about the history of your people, and how time and time again, even though you pursue them, they move away from you, and they choose to worship other things. Help us to see the areas in our life where we do that too. Help us to see the ways in which we move away from you, where we follow our own nose, we go our own way, we follow our heart, and at the end of it, we just find a dead deer. We think it's something that we want, but what we really, what we really want is you. Oh God, will you, help, will you help us to be a community that moves toward you, even in the midst of persecution like Stephen is facing? Help us to be a community that, that is prayerful, that reads your word and desires to obey its command. Father, help us to love you more. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.